This is this week's version of the Line Podcast with Jen Gerson and Matt Gurney. We're going to spend some time today looking at each other, wondering why the hell Melanie Jolie is saying the strange thing she's doing about Israel, Hamas, Gaza. We're going to take a look at escalation at home, some pretty horrifying anti-Semitic acts this week. And we're also going to talk about a new federal report that leaves both Jen and I nervous. All that and more on the latest episode of The Line Podcast. Melanie Jolie. Tell me what Melanie Jolie had to say today. I don't want to tell you what Melanie Jolie had to say today. Um, I think I think it technically was yesterday. Uh, she was returning from some summit, the G7, I think. And I, I read you the full answer she gave reporters. And I read it in the Star. And first, the first thing, part, let me explain for people who maybe don't know Melanie Jolie. What exactly is she? She's the who foreign affairs she? minister. Our foreign affairs minister. Um, Thank you. Which was sort of a, a baffling career resurrection. Uh, Melanie Jolie, if I recall correctly, early in her career had had a junior portfolio, uh, Canadian Heritage, I think it was, and did not excel in it. And then was sort of punted out of view for a while uh, and ended up uh, kind of making a surprise return to the, the spotlight with one of, in fact, the most prominent uh, jobs in, in the Canadian cabinet, which sort of left a lot of people scratching their heads. My speculation at the time was that this was actually Justin Trudeau designating a preferred successor. Melanie Jolie and Justin Trudeau are kind of from the same branch of the current federal liberal party, both Quebecers, both on the on the Hopi Changey, Sunny Ways progressive part of it. But who, who cares? What she actually said when she got back from the summit, she was obviously asked about the, Canada's position on the fighting. And she gave an answer that I think made perfect sense. And uh, the start of the answer was, uh, we and our allies support humanitarian pauses to allow humanitarian supplies to be delivered to Gaza. Jen and I both support that. To allow uh, the evacuation of hostages, if possible, well, we obviously support that. And uh, to uh, possibly allow chances for dialogue. And, eh, okay, I think that's that's unlikely at this time. But in general... I'm okay with the humanitarian pause so long as it is short and tactical to achieve a certain objective, to allow uh, aid to reach uh, Gazans, to get hostages out, also foreign citizens, including Canadians, get them out. But then she kept going. And maybe just read it out. Read read, read, read exactly what she said. I want you to read exactly what she said. All right. All right. All right. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, watching this on YouTube, you'll have to indulge me a minute. I'm going to have to move from one tab to another. But Jen, here is exactly, and I know it looks like I'm staring off into space here, but this is the exact quote. So let me read the part that you and I both agreed with. You know, we're all in favor of that one day there will be a ceasefire. That's what President Macron uh, of France said. But what France has said is that currently we're at the stage of calling for a humanitarian pause, because speaking concretely, we must evacuate Canadians. We have to ensure hostages are freed. We have to make more, assure more humanitarian aid gets into Gaza. That's the part where Jen and I were like, 100% will endorse that sure. high five. Yep, cool. Then she said, uh, uh, the, the, hopefully it will lead to a form of detente. That's summarized by the star. But then the quote begins again. And so allow, I hope, even more negotiations at a negotiating table where there are Israelis, Hamas, and Qatar, which is present as a moderator. Hamas. Okay, now I'm going to start looking properly into the camera again because I've closed the tab. Yep. Yeah. And also, you need to make this point emphatically. Well, I used a word before we started the podcast that you have instructed me not to use during the podcast. Yeah, we don't need to get canceled for the stupid reasons. No, and people know the words we use here. So the word I was going to use was even worse than that. But my reaction to the comments, and by the way, it was not a slur against Melanie Jolie. It was a reaction to the comments. Here is the sanitized version. What the fuck? That's the nice version. Hamas does not want to be at a bargaining table. And we don't want them at a bargaining table because they don't mean it. And it was Hillary Clinton of all people this week, who went on like The View or something, one of the daytime talk shows, and she was pointing out, you can't trust Hamas because what people demanding a ceasefire conveniently forget is that on October 6th, there was a ceasefire and Hamas broke it so that they could carry out their rape program. So and- so here, here, here's a, a point that 
without before we get into the ceasefire stuff, there's just a point I'd like to make, and that yeah. is it, we really have to stop ignoring the words that Hamas uses and the things that they are literally continually going on television to threaten. They have literally said, we're not interested in a ceasefire. If you stop the military actions, we're going to continue to murder Israelis. They have literally said, it's really unfortunate about all the Gaza citizens that are dying. Um, Unfortunately, that's just a necessary sacrifice that we're willing to accept in pursuit of our goals, which is the wiping out of the Jews from Israel. They have literally been challenged by Saudi reporters on many of these factors who have asked them, well, you know what, you've spent all of your aid money on highly elaborate, tactically useful uh, tunnels underneath Hamas. Why did you not put some of that money aside for bomb shelters? And is and Hamas spokespersons have said it's basically not our responsibility to take yeah. care of our citizens. It's the UN's responsibility to take care of our citizens. It's the NGO's responsibility to take care of our citizens. We want we accept the death of our citizens on mass as a necessary sacrifice in the pursuit of our strategic ends. They, they have put this in, in that is their starting position. And if you want to have a ceasefire, a ceasefire has a very specific set of meanings. And it requires both parties to agree to those terms, not just the Israelis. It also requires Hamas to agree to stop engaging in terrorism in the pursuit of a negotiated settlement of some kind with Israelis. Hamas is not interested in a two-party state. We've made this point equally before. Their literal raison d'etre, their charter explicitly states that their goal is to kill all the Jews, push them into the sea, and take over all of Israel. That That is their goal. They are not interested in pursuing a peaceful two-state solution. They've st- they want to create an Islamic state. They, 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 they want to recreate IS. They looked at what IS did in, in, in Iraq and said, yes, that. Okay? That's their position. And if you want to defend these groups because you are sympathetic to the Palestinian cause or sympathetic to Palestinians in the abstract. I mean, I can follow you into sympathy with Palestinians. I can't follow you into sympathy with Hamas. And I can't follow you into a place where we treat Hamas as a legitimate actor in this whom we need to neg- negotiate with. Podcast that's, that's, where you, that's where you lose me on this. The line podcast listeners will never have the pleasure of having seen the war against my own raging emotions has been playing on my face over the last couple of minutes. Um, have, have I explained this position as clearly and emphatically as I'm capable of doing so? I think. Look, uh, what I would add is that how many, how many variations of the truism or the cliche or whatever you want to call it have you heard that basically boils down to when someone shows you who they are, believe them or there's the other one actions speak louder than words so if someone is saying one uh, saying one thing but behaving in another way you believe the actions not the word you know i know i'm drifting into drill the the twitter account territory here with um where he said you gotta hand it to 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 isis and then he had that it was the the famous joke right like the corrected the correction in fact you do not need to hand it to isis but i'm gonna risk having one of those moments of infamy there and i'm gonna give hamas this slightest bit of credit they are internally consistent oh yes their words and their actions align yes and you know they are they are they are morally clear in their pursuit of their strategic objectives They, they leave little room for ambiguity um or confusion or doubt i look the first two thirds of melanie jolie's statement made perfect sense and i think we here at the line would would sign on to that with without equivocation we would endorse that immediately uh better chance to get hostages out better chance to get canadians out more humanitarian aid to gazans who are suffering and also let's give a a humanitarian pause also might get more opportunities for gazan civilians to get evacuated through the safe corridors yeah great yes on board with that um the idea imagine imagine for a moment that like like Three weeks after 
the Canadian foreign affairs minister was like, we, we really need get to get Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda in Geneva. to the negotiating yeah. table. Like, like yeah. stop and stop and think that one through. Like you know, we, we, we're really concerned about the, the the escalation of violence in Afghanistan. It's time to get or, or, bin or Laden. lower Manhattan. Yeah, exactly. It's time to get Bin Laden at the negotiating yeah, table and hammer out a deal and hammer out a deal. Yeah, I mean, literally, that's what that's what these people are fucking calling for. I can't. I and I think with with Melanie Jolie. I, 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 <laughs> Like, so where do, where do we go with that? No, here, here, here's where I'm going to go with it. Okay. I saw one person, smart, well-meaning, heart in the right place, say that almost all wars end in ceasefires. That yes, and those right. ceasefires lead to an opportunity to have negotiations. And that's correct. That correct. is true. Yep. But almost is not all. Some wars have to end with the complete destruction of the enemy's military infrastructure and the occupation of their territory. Yep. And, and, you know, it's, I, I've been having interesting conversations this week. I think one of the things some people are, are struggling with right now, and uh, I'm going to say, I should have, I should have like a sign made or made it maybe a graphic we can flash on the screen, but our expectations are a problem, right? Cause I think there are certain people out there who expect Hamas will be like the ethnic groups that uh, were warring after Yugoslavia collapsed mm-hmm. or sure. uh, the Irish Republican Army, where there's an opportunity here to actually, after some horrific bloodletting, to have a conversation about what is the final status going to be? What are the borders? What are the jurisdictions going to be? But there are, so you're, if, if your expectations are, are negotiated peace with Hamas along those lines a genocidal death cult yeah your expectation is a genocidal death cult there must eventually be negotiations between israel and palestinians along those lines absolutely but it will not be with hamas hamas has to be destroyed and people this week have it's funny sometimes where you'll tell people what you mean and they won't believe you because they disagree with you so profoundly maybe it's flattering in a way but they assume either that i don't know what i said or that i'm an idiot and people have been saying to me, but don't you know the how many civilians will die when Hamas is being destroyed? And I say to them, yes. And they're like, are you prepared to accept that? And I say to them, yes. Not because I want it to happen, but because it is the only way that it will happen short of Hamas surrendering. Arguing against Hamas's military destruction is arguing against reality. Hamas must be destroyed, or at least to the point it's possible that this conflict might get to the point where Hamas has been sufficiently degraded that what's left of it surrenders. But that's but not where no Belinda asked. You know, someone said to me this week, so what you're saying is we shall make a desolation and call it peace. And I said, basically. That sometimes that, I yeah. mean, this is also the problem that I think a lot of people run into because very few people in our current generation have experience with for certainly not firsthand experience with violence and very little experience with warfare. That's often how wars end. One side wins. Destroys the other. That's yeah. It, it's awful. It's a terrible thing. We we don't say war is bad because that's the nice thing to say. We say war is bad because it's it's really bad. It's the most horrible thing that humans can do to one another. And sometimes it's the only way forward. It was sometimes you... a, sometimes the only the only the only option here is that one side needs to win because otherwise you wind up in these periods of uh perpetual cycles of 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 violence right where where essentially okay so there's a ceasefire Hamas's military capacities aren't totally destroyed they continue to fester they rebuild and in 10 years we redo this we we regain this exercise in 20 years we redo this exercise in 30 years we redo this exercise you either destroy Hamas and their entire military capability, and then start from scratch re- renegotiating with Palestinians or whatever left is whatever is left of a government arm of Palestinians to create a lasting, sustainable, peaceful solution. Which may fail, but you've got to try. But you've got to try. Yeah. Or you wind up getting trapped in this cycle of violence that never ends perpetually. Or you let Hamas win. Like the other option here is that Hamas is the winning party. 
those pick one pick one 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 of these three options they're all bad they all suck and they all involve lots of civilian life that's just not how we think though i mean this is these are this is the flashing graphic expectations are a problem yeah this is this is how asperger's people like me think (laughs) like emotionally like most conflicts end in a ceasefire and a negotiated peace but not all of them because some of them can't Israel with Hamas does not have someone to negotiate with. I would also argue that like even Afghanistan didn't end with the negotiated ceasefire and negotiated peace. We lost. Yeah, we lost. That's what happened. Yeah. We went in. We got, we we were defeated by a war of attrition and eventually we gave up and went away. away. The West lost in Afghanistan. The Taliban won. And we could afford to lose in Afghanistan because we don't live there. Israel does not have that option. Correct. You know, I think um, I think people who are calling for a ceasefire, I understand that they mean well. They and do. I understand that they are appalled by the same footage and video. People have been asking me all week, because I, I wrote the column earlier week about what I saw at the Israeli consulate. People have been asking me, well, have you seen what it, what's happening in Gaza? Yeah. Yes. I've seen yeah. a kid whose skull is fractured and his brains are gone. I've seen the kid whose leg has been blown off being carried through the rubble. I've seen the guy in the parking lot whose legs are gone. And I don't like any of it. But I understand that the only way that's going to stop is when Hamas is defeated. And I hope that happens really quickly. And I think that just it is so foreign to the North American experience being stuck in an existential fight where the other guy is not looking for trade concessions or a sliver of land, but they're looking to kill you realistically we've never had an existential fight not north america no not north america not well, not, not canada and the united states some no, of the we've indigenous part- tribes certainly did okay but, that's fair yes yeah. that's fair um we're, we've participated in in other people's existential fights but we've never actually been in an existential fight and the concept of that being a thing is is completely foreign to our mentality and, and our experience and our lived experience our military history for the last several centuries, and this is where the military history nerds will perk up, but the rest uh, the rest of the people I might have to explain this a bit. Our military history is mostly expeditionary. We fight abroad. Our battles are fought on someone else's soil. And if we lose, we lose soldiers, we lose equipment, we might even lose whole units, but the country is still there. You know, when we when we got wiped out at, at uh, Dieppe, the Dieppe raid, we lost the whole brigade in effect. Canada was fine. Like no one missed a meal in Canada because the Dieppe raid failed. Other countries, other civilizations, other societies throughout human history, if you lose the battle, you're dead. And, and, and I would say that this exists, this 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 dichotomy exists for both Hamas and Israel. Oh no, it, it sure shit does now. Yeah. Right? Uh, the Israelis have been saying that this is a fight for Israel's survival. And North Americans go, no, 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 it's not. Guys, you can disagree with them all you want. They think they're right. They're well, also accordingly. I would also argue that they are, because if they I, wind I up in this, I, if they wind up in this in this continued cycle where they mow the lawn against Hamas, but don't totally degrade Hamas's capacity to exist as a, as a military unit, um, and then Hamas then rebuilds, rearms, and we we just engage in this process every fifteen to twenty years as young Palestinians come of age and can be recruited at a significant number. Um, what winds up happening is that every single time we go through this cycle, Israel loses the support of the international community and Israel and Israel loses particularly the support of Americans. And if I were Israel, the, the numbers that would scare the shit out of me would be the demographic breakdowns about Israeli support. So our parents sort of came of age in a time when Israel was the underdog against the much larger and superior Arab force. And so their, their, their concept of Israel was formed against this idea that they they were in fact the the lesser power. And then you and I came of age in this era in which Israel was overwhelmingly the military and economic superior. And then we have this new generation coming after us coming of age when when that was extremely true. And you can only see Palestinians as being this oppressed underdog. So like there's been a perceptional shift that's happened over the last hundred years. And as a result, the generation that's coming up does not support Israel. Um, and emphatically does not support Israel. And you can operate on the assumption that will change as they get older. I remember back in the day, a lot of people in the journalism industry were very assured that, you know, the young people would pick up newspapers as they aged. Didn't turn out happening. 
if I were Israel, I'd be looking at this on a 20 to 50 year time frame and thinking, okay, but I literally can't afford to keep up this fight every 10 to 15 to 20 years perpetually because the generation that's coming up now and will be in power in 30 to 40 years from now isn't going to be there for me. They they can't guarantee that you're going to have the military support, the moral support, the soft power support, the hard power support. It's gone in a generation or two. Oh, and hovering so, in the background of all, I agree with you 100%, but you're, the, the other thing, the Iranian bomb. Like this, right? Israel has a fairly, or I'll put it this way, Israel believes it has a fairly narrow window of opportunity to establish security conditions that it can survive long term. Hamas yeah. was not its primary concern until about 32 days ago. It is now. Well, yeah. And as, as I said, I think, especially if you're looking at Hamas operating in tandem with, with the Iranians in any level. I, I I seriously do believe that what's happening right now in Israel does represent an existential threat to the country and the, to the people there. So imagine October 7th, where something very similar happens. There's hang gliders and there's mortars and drones and the fence gets breached. But what happens that time, instead of raiding parties there to, to rape, murder and uh, butcher and take hostages back, you've got three or four pickup trucks that burst through the border fences put the pedal to the metal and drive nuclear weapons in the beds of the trucks into the nearest Israeli cities and just. And then, and then, okay. So to repeat, so October 7th, except now we escalate with a nuclear armed Iran, yeah. you know, like, like the window for action for, for Israeli to establish a peaceful, sustainable two-state solution here is actually really small. And if they don't take advantage of it, honestly, I think that there's a pretty good chance that, they won't exist in our lifetime. They'll lose. They'll lose. Yep. That's right. And that's, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the other way that this war ends. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> and what replaces Israel? I mean, this is the other problem, the idea that a lot of people said, well, from the, the chant from the river to the sea isn't a genocidal chant because what we really want is like a Palestinian-run Israeli state. And like the Israeli Jews will just live in the Palestinian-run Israeli state. I think that is... There's a whole naive. There's a whole bunch of people in southern Israel who have some questions. Yeah. Like I think that if you have if you're operating under the assumption that the Palestinians, as led by a Hamas-like government, are going to live in, in harmony with the Israeli Jews under their I think that's insane. I, I don't I, I think that you are you're you're circling Mars now with that level of naivete. I think that is completely detached from Hamas's own charter, and I think it's completely detached from the realities of Jews in the Middle East. I mean, there's a reason why the Jews got run out of every Arab nation. There's that video I showed you a few weeks ago, um, someone before the UN uh, who just said, you call us the apartheid state. Iran, where are your Jews? Iraq, where are your Jews? Libya, where are your Jews? You kind of just went down the whole list. Yeah, there were, tradi- there, the were traditional, there were traditional Jewish communities in virtually every modern, and what is now a modern Arab state. Major, established, centuries old Jewish thousands, communities. In, thousands of years. Right, right, you're right, sorry, thousands of years old Jewish communities in all of these places that no longer exist. But whatever could have happened to them? What could have happened to them, Matt? Well, I think we're starting to take a look at exactly what happened to them, which is a Real morbid transition on that note, like and subscribe the line podcast because we're starting leave to us see, a glowing review. Leave us a glowing, glowing review. Um, I, before but, we pivot, Jen, can I just like, I yeah, we'll, we'll make the pivot now. But can I just mention something to you? I, I, I had lunch this week uh, with someone I've been catching up with lately and uh, was just telling kind of like my career, like 16 years in the business now, and thinking I used to read the latest Senate report, go to the economic club luncheon where the relevant cabinet minister would deliver remarks and write up an 800 word story uh, talking about like telecom regulation reform or, you know, which fighter jet we were going to procure next. Right before COVID hit, the thing I'd been writing about the most for months had been dragged out labor negotiations between the Ontario government and the teachers unions. Oh, so cute. There was also a time when you worked at the national post, where they'd bring a drink cart around on Fridays. It was very civilized. It was more civilized time, Matt. We peaked in 2019. Oh no, we peaked way before that. 
Um, depends. We peaked in like 2007. We could. That's actually an interesting debate to have. I think we peaked somewhere in that range because I okay. think depending on what exactly you're looking at, you could call it at different times. But the, the global financial crisis was the beginning of the end for everything. Yeah, I think probably there was a phase of peaking. Mm. I um, remember- these things. These things never happen in one day, right? No. No. Um, um, all right, let's talk about the other things never happening in one day and slow escalation. You know what, Jen? Uh, I gotta, I gotta say at the beginning here, I was wrong, uh, and wrong? I'm, gonna, I'm gonna own that because okay. I had told you last week on the pod, um, and in the dispatch that I actually felt a little bit better. I thought this, the protests had settled down a bit. Mm-hmm. I thought the risk of regional escalation had diminished uh, because of the Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, had given a speech. I still feel a little bit better about the regional escalation dangers, but I think I was wrong that we had seen uh, the peak of the crazy here at home. This week, we had a Jewish man at a, at a, a protest and a counter protest. He was murdered in Los Angeles and in Montreal. You knew it would be Montreal. I think you and I both went on the record and predicted it would be Montreal, not just the slurs and the screaming and and the the, sh- the shoving at concordia but a jewish community center in a synagogue in montreal uh hit with molotov cocktails thank god no major damage but arson again targeting cultural and religious sites and gunfire gunshots fired into jewish schools no one was hurt but we're tipping over jen from also concordia has been an absolute shit show uh, that that's a fairly open ended statement, but yes, well, uh, we're t- not all we're, academics. We're we're moving from like we have not yet had, thank God, and and God forbid, but we have not yet had something so egregiously awful happen in this country that it kind of draws a sharp line between the nonviolent phase and the violent phase. But I think we're tipping over into a into a. a a phase of this thing where I'm no longer convinced that we can say that this is a nonviolent matter in this country. When you've got bullets flying into schools, Warren, we're, in Kinsella, tra- we're on the train now. Warren Kinsella uh, tweeted a few days ago, a columnist for the Toronto sun. He tweeted and he was part of the briefing uh, that I was at the consulate on, uh, on, on Monday. And he, he wrote a column in, in the sun describing much the same things that I, that I wrote about in the line. He simply tweeted that he had dinner with a friend, a Jewish friend, and the Jewish friend told him that he was planning to get a gun. I haven't really commented on this publicly yet, Jen, but I can tell you a couple things. The number of Jewish people in my life who have sought me out knowing that I'm a gun guy to help them uh, get guns, between five and ten, mm. trending upward. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, recently broke one of my pistol magazines at, at the range at uh, the spring and it broke and I went to buy another one. And when I was at a gun store up in, uh, in the 905, I noticed inventory was low. Mm-hmm. And I said to the owner of the store, kind of looking around, I said, what's going on? He looked at me like this and I went since the attack and he just nodded. Mm-hmm. This isn't good. You said it well, Jen. We're on the train. and We're on the train. That's a leading indicator. Someone's going to get killed. So basically, I don't know if someone's going to kill or not. The thing that our friend Laura sent us a note, a tweet this morning showing, for example, uh, posters of Heather Reisman, a prominent, wealthy Toronto Jew, and basically Indigo, there's a note saying, right? oh, Indigo, yes, yeah. um, CEO of Indigo, and, and, and notes to the effect of like, Indigo is supporting you know the killing of children in Gaza kind of thing. As if Heather Reisman, yeah, was person uh, who just happened to be a Toronto Jew was personally responsible. Like all of your book sales are going into murder bombs. Like yeah, I, Heather it, Heather Reisman has deployed her F fifteen squadron to the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the kind of. Firstly, if you were to tell me that this sort of stuff would show up as frequently as it did two months ago, I would have been like, in Canada, come on. Like I actually would have been skeptical of that, but. This has really torn the lid off of, I think, a lot of long simmering, festering problems and 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 positions. When you start to see, for example, prominent wealthy Jews targeted individually by name for what's happening in the Middle East, 
we're now on the crazy train. That's effing nuts. And that is, that is, I'm sorry, that is not only defamation, it's incitement to violence against her personally. It absolutely is. This is not aimed at you, Jen. I don't want you to feel like I'm yelling at you, but I'm going to raise mm-hmm. my voice here briefly. And this is just going under the collective ether. What you're talking about, uh, targeting prominent Jewish uh, individuals, uh, targeting Jewish-owned businesses. Everybody, read a fucking history book. Yes. We've seen this before. Yes. Like, this, this, none this of is, this is new. This is part of a very pre- predictable, historic pattern of escalation of violence against Jews. And I'm sorry, I don't care how you feel about the Palestinian conflict. You can agree with us, disagree with us. That's totally fine. There is no Toronto Jewish-run business that has anything to do with it. There's no, there is no justification. This is not a legitimate act of Palestinian resistance to go shit on Heather Reisman or to go after the landowner landover cafe. Like that. This is just straightforward. This is a straightforward and entirely predictable historic cycle that we have seen again and again and again over history of anti-Semitic violence. And I think that at this point, I mean, I won't target people because I have good relationships with this person, but someone on Twitter made this comment about the Molotov cocktail thrown against the the Jewish synagogue in, in, in Montreal and said something to the effect of, this is bad, and obviously this really leads to the perception that pro-Palestinian um, uh, uh, protesters are violent. And I was like, yeah, those pesky perceptions, they just keep on popping up everywhere we go. It's its funny how those pesky perceptions won't, won't go away. And this person responded, you know, the vast majority of, of these people are people protesting in favor of Palestine are not violent. And I'm like, that's absolutely true. They're just chanting from the river to the sea and screaming about an intifada because it's cute now. Um, no, of course, it's not the majority of the pro-Palestinian protesters who are going to be violent. It's never the majority. It's, it's always a minority within the group that is going to escalate to violence. Nazi That's party literally membership. always true. Yeah, Nazi party membership topped out at about 8 million out of a 1945-era German population of about 80 million. The majority of Germans weren't Nazis. We still firebombed the country into oblivion and occupied it for generations. The, 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 the problem mi- that we're running into is the concept of the tyranny of the minority. Yep. And that is there's there's a minority that is a fringe and has no actual power or say over a larger group or society as a whole. And there's a minority that is still a minority, but has disproportionate power over the, the, the Overton window, the discourse, whatever you want to call it, within either a larger group or within society as a whole. I mean, a lot of people criticized my 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 piece from two weeks ago about how the Hamas stuff was a mask off moment, saying, "Well, it's not me. It's not I'm the left. This isn't me. I don't believe in these extremist positions." I know. I believe this you, is, but I believe you. But the problem yeah. is that like a minority of liberal lefties have completely hijacked your goddamn movement, and they are now also holding disproportionate power over the state of social discourse. Yeah. I believe that the people who buy into a lot of these ide- ideologies is probably sub 10%, but they have an extraordinary amount of power within the society at large if they can manage to put those 10% in, in the, the right, right positions. positions. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's funny. I didn't know you were going to say say those exact words, but like, yeah, you took them right out of my mouth, the right positions, right? I mean, every time we've heard of some coup in some banana republic somewhere, right? Like, a couple of like a few dozen loyal so- soldiers seize the radio station, the TV station, and the telephone exchange. Right? Like, if you control a few key points in anything, including yeah. a society, you will have probably not total control, but you'll have un you'll have disproportionate control, and a few critical people in the right places is all you need. And this is why I've told you this, Jen, so many times before. It's one of my little meta thesis of life. It only takes a few assholes to ruin a great dinner party. Well, speaking of a dinner party, the the tyranny of the minority problem was highlighted to me by, I forget the name, but he was an academic, a fairly heterodox academic, but he made this point. And that is, say you have 100 people coming to a dinner party and 5% of them are strongly and vehemently opposed to GMOs. Well, guess what? Your dinner party menu is going to feature no GMOs, even though 95% of the people have a sane and rational position on GMOs. 
the tyranny that 5% can dictate what happens and the, and the menu options for the other 95 by virtue of their disproportionate kind of give a shit levels. Oh, think of, think of a more recent example. How many family events in recent years, um, even say the last year or two, everybody had to do a COVID test because one person was worried. Because one person. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what the, if the majority of the position, actually the, the, the extreme majority position might be sane, centrist, rational, whatever you want to call it. But if the 5% or the 10% gives 300% more of a give a shit about that issue and is willing to put themselves into positions of strategic power and authority and the rest of the society or the rest of the group isn't willing to call them out or marginalize them, then you are now you, you, you are now dictated to by the minority. The minority gets the say. And I think that is a really roundabout bird's eye level way of looking at talking about what we're talking about. Yes, we're perfectly aware that the majority of people who are who are screaming from the river to the sea don't see that self see that itself as anti-Semitic or or genocidal phrase. But a small percentage of people in those groups do. They understand exactly what they're yelling. And a percentage of those groups are going to commit and escalate violence. And if the rest of society continues to not call that out, punish it, um, and and potentially um, uh, prosecute it as the crimes that these things are, I mean, I'm not talking about free speech issue. I've got no issue with people protesting. But when we start to cross the cross, there's a, there's a line here, and when we start getting into that line into into actual prosecutable criminal acts, yeah, it's always going to be a minority that commits it. But that minority can do an extraordinary amount of damage. Think uh, like yeah, it only takes a few assholes to ruin a dinner party. I mm -hmm. I think again, flashing graphic on on the screen, expectations are a problem. I don't think people understand how much the the course of a civilization or a society can be changed by a few people in critical positions. Sure. Um. I've never been a proponent of what historians would call the great man theory. I, I really am of the of the view that cultural and historical and, and uh, civilizational change is a confluence of faster, uh, factors, that there's sort of like a, an inertia to history and that the forces are not necessarily preordained, but they will push in a direction. But a few critical people in positions of power and it doesn't have to be elected power, political power, military power. It can be cultural power, social power, religious power. There's Martin a lot of different kinds of power in a society. Martin Luther King Jr. was a preacher from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. But he put himself at a time and a place of history where he shaped a movement. And there are other examples we could look to of where small numbers of either an individual or small numbers of people were able to push history in a certain direction you know go to go to that synagogue in montreal go to the community center just down the street from it go to the schools in montreal the jewish schools and daycares that had gunfire were shot at and tell them yeah, don't worry about it though it's not the majority it doesn't have to be and I was just doing some mental math on this. I was just I was I was talking earlier in the week about this with a friend, Jen. And the reason I feel very well prepared for this podcast is because a friend of mine basically made that point and, and said, it's not the majority of people. And I said, imagine a million people, just, uh, just any random million people. Pretend that is your civilization. You live in a you live on an island with a million people. And 99% of them would never dream of being violent. You've got 10,000 potentially violent people. And if 99% of those potentially violent people never tip over into violence, you've got 10 potential mass murderers on your island of a million people. Imagine what would happen to any city of a million people if it experienced 10 mass casualty incidents. <laughs> you would lose your mind as a society. And... The uh, yeah, I I'm, I'm with you, Jen. Uh, the idea, and I know what's comforting, and I know people also give themselves absolution from feeling any responsibility over the crazy minority when they reassure themselves and others that the majority of us do not feel this way. I accept that, I believe it. But one of the reasons, Jen, that you and I have always sh shaken off the 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 label of being partisan or a member of any particular tribe because I'm not signing myself up for any movement where I have to defend myself 
by telling anyone, I'm not one of those guys. I'm responsible for me. And me alone. I'm responsible for me. And I can barely control myself. and and, And I also don't like this idea of trying to like, I don't like it when people do this to the left or to the right. And I don't like people doing this to the left where you try to completely um, uh, undermine or delegitimize an entire ideology based on the actions of a couple of wingnuts. Okay. Like I, I, I am not trying to delegitimize entire leftist discourse because of the actions of some dude who throws a, a, a fire, a Molotov cocktail at a, at a, at a mosque. I don't think that that's accurate or fair. I do think that a lot of leftist discourse and by extension, larger social discourse has been disproportionately dominated by a particularly a liberal strain of leftism that has become dominant in the last six to seven years. Okay. That is my argument. And I think that that's a defensible argument at the same time. Like, I think that we're being naive if we don't recognize that we are on a, like I said, we're on a train now, like the, the, the anti-Semitic violence is almost certainly going to escalate and amplify from here. And we know that because that's typically what happens in history. So right now, Jen, right now, this exact moment, there are people in Montreal who this week threw bombs at a synagogue, threw uh, Molotov cocktails uh, at a a community center and fired guns into Jewish schools. I don't know if it's the same people. I don't know if it's different groups. I don't know if it's one group with multiple people. I don't know any of those things. But I know that this exact moment, they have not been caught and brought to justice, and they're still out there. Does anyone think the guy who fired the gun into the Jewish school has gotten it out of his system? Well, the other thing, too, is does anybody... Well, that was that. Remember that crazy time I fired the guy at the Jewish school? Never doing that again, but it was great. Or that being said, do we, do, do we, do we believe that any part of this is isolated? No. No. This is the problem. And this is the this is, I think, the other thing that differentiates this from other sort of more random acts of violence, which we've definitely seen against other religious groups before. We've absolutely seen mosques get targeted. We've seen churches get targeted. What you know, like that, like we we do that see Beltman examples. Who killed the, the Muslim family in London. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We we and and there was a broader social context to that violence as well, right? Like we but we but we do see isolated incidents of violence against minorities, ethnic groups, religious. What makes this different is that this is now happening in an escalatory context where we are normalizing and, for example, also not not justifying, but we're normalizing and sort of undermining and saying, well, they don't really mean that, to rhetoric that is increasingly violent against Jewish people, to actions that are increasingly targeting Jewish businesses and individuals. Like, you can't separate, unlike a lot of examples of sort of religious violence or people, you know, painting the swastika on a, on a grave three years ago or whatever, which probably was just kids being stupid or, you know, random acts of psychos or, or mentally d- disturbed individuals who really weren't well. This is now happening in a, in a, in a kind of environment, in a context that will grow on and normalize and escalate and build on one another. If Am I saying that in a way that makes sense? Where like mm-hmm. when one of these acts happens and the people involved get away with it, and then you have a bunch of people sort of hemming and hawing and be like, well, you know, but that is going to prompt the next event and that's going to prompt the next event and that's going to prompt the next event Yeah, in a way and, that I think that we haven't seen in this country in a really, really long time. You know, it's funny, you, you um, as a rookie reporter, uh, my my beautiful and talented line colleague here, Jen Gerson, you work the Stars Radio Room. I did. And something, uh, the Toronto Stars Radio Room. And something that journalists and uh, police and municipal officials have long understood is that when someone kills themselves on the TDC, we don't always publicize that because mm-hmm. there's a contagion, uh, contagion danger. Contagion problem, yeah. And we understand that in the abstract where we don't talk about certain bad things because we don't want to encourage others. And we understand that on the small scale, the municipal scale. So the Toronto star 680 news, CP 24, they don't always report on the, the sad, lonely person who throws himself off a bridge or in front of a, a subway. Yeah. But now we're in a global information ecosystem where that man being murdered in Los Angeles hit the Toronto group chats mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. There is no moderating effect of time and distance anymore. 
Mm. And just hypothetically, like God knows I'm not hoping for this and I'm not, I'm going to be neutral, which way this goes. But if a synagogue or mosque is attacked anywhere in the Western world, God forbid, every community in the Western world, every Jewish community, every Muslim community, or probably both everywhere is going to know about it effectively at the speed of light. There is no, like, once upon a time... And one act is going to justify the next, is going to justify the next, is going to justify the next. Or, and also, hey, I'm the weirdo gun guy here, but I'm not blind to the problems we're getting in, into here. We could easily find ourselves in a situation where someone, and again, I'm being value neutral here. I don't know which side it'll be on. But I could see someone hearing a knock in the middle of the night and letting fly with their brand shiny new 12 gauge shotgun and killing the drunk neighbor who was one house off fumbling for his keys. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think one of the things I was saying earlier in the week, Jen, is that when the guardrails collapse, like we're going right back to, is it, I never know. Is it Yates or Yeats? I never know how to pronounce the friggin' poet's it's name, Yeats. but the center doesn't hold. Your anarchy is loosed upon the earth. You know, we all have our favorite lines from that poem, I guess. But the one that is always stuck with me is mere anarchy is loosed. When the center doesn't hold, things fall apart. And that's why anarchy guardrails, due process, and all of these concepts are so important. And it's also why it's so important for the police to take these things seriously and to ensure all of these communities, regardless of anything, I'm saying all of these communities need to feel supported, respected, and listen oh. to and also they need to understand that they're being watched detected. Detected. oh yeah yeah nothing they're not going to get away with nobody nobody and i'm scared i'm the value neutral nobody's going to get away with acts of unsolicited violence against other religious or terrorism groups, or intimidation or terrorism or intimidation or anything and on that note i think that brings us to our last issue like and subscribe the line because we're increasingly nervous about the police's capacity to do exactly that couple of points that I would make before I get to the week, uh, the week's news is that a couple of times, look, I think all of us have had this experience. So Jen, we, my family and I, we went out for dinner last night. The restaurant was, didn't have staff. How many mm -hmm. versions of that have you seen where there's just no staff at mm -hmm. businesses, services? I mean, the healthcare system is the, the, the big example of this. Police forces all over the country are badly under strength. Yep. I had, uh, and I have to be careful when I, I said this, because this was a series of private conversations, but I was at a at a bar uh, after an event, and uh, someone had given a talk, and uh, a few of us retired to the bar, and I found myself at a, at a table. It was a big mixed crowd, uh, you know, so a lot of, like, we had name tags, people introducing themselves, and I found myself talking with a bunch of cops, and the, the one thing all the cops were talking about, and they represented different forces was being badly under strength not hmm. enough officers on duty not enough forces on the books to handle daily normal routine operations there's a report this week that uh came from oh yeah I struggle to pronounce this ncicop the national security intelligence committee of parliamentarians i think like mm -hmm. nisicop whatever ncicop i think is the good it's, it's a stupid acronym but they have a report out about the RCMP, that the RCMP is currently not able to properly perform its national security functions. The RCMP is a weird beast. And for anyone who doesn't know this, the RCMP is our federal police force. It is tasked with high level federal responsibilities. That includes counterterrorism, counterintelligence. Uh, security for high-ranking federal officials dip or foreign diplomats on our soil, security of purely federal sites, embassies, uh, diplomatic things, uh, parts of parliament, blah, blah, blah. But because of the nature of the RCMP, the exact same police force is also writing speeding tickets in New Brunswick and busting up bar fights in rural uh, Saskatchewan. It does not make sense to run a police force this way. And because it is what it is, you need officers in local communities for those horrific domestic violence calls, for the drunk driver, for the speed trap that brings in local revenue. The RCMP does not have the budget, the personnel, or I would even say the bureaucratic and leadership bandwidth 
to do all that we have tasked it with doing. And Ensacop is warning in a blunt report that it cannot discharge its national security functions properly. Well, and right I, I would further that and say, like, we know that actually the RCMP has been horrifically underfunded and under, in a, uh, unable to deal with white collar crime for years. Yeah. To the extent that Canada is actually, in, in terms of the Western world, we're one of the capitals of white collar crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, money just, laundering and tax evasion. Yeah, money laundering and tax evasion. There's a reason why Vancouver is what it is today. Um, yeah, because the resources go to like bar fights and domestic yeah. violence, national security, white collar crime. Like we're, yeah, it, we're it, it's the it, hierarchy it, of needs here, right? Like, yeah, the capacity to the capacity to deal with these things just doesn't exist. So now we're starting to see that lack of capacity bleed into other more crucial areas. So to all of our beloved line podcast listeners and viewers, and as Jen says, like, and subscribe, leave us a glowing review. Tell all your friends about us. Think of what we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes, 20 minutes, perhaps. And then recall that the national security intelligence committee of parliamentarians has said this week, that we do not have at, a, at the federal level an effective national security agency. Cool, cool, cool. Everything's fine. It's fine. We're sitting ducks. Think of like, just think of the, like, think of the last few years. COVID is ripping through Europe and the Middle East. It's in Seattle. It's in New York. Canadians in their infinite wisdom are already stripping every Costco bear of toilet paper. And the official line of the federal government was that the risk is low. Think of the convoy, the Ottawa police being given repeated warnings from OPP intelligence that these guys are coming and they're here to stay. And the Ottawa police planned for a two-day protest. And as the POEC documents that I wrote a column about documented within minutes of the convoy actually arriving in Ottawa, the OPP incident command headquarters descended into screaming matches. Think of everything I wrote about in the columns when the POEC report came out of federal officials within our government were stumbling around being informed reading my fucking columns because there was no effective sharing of national security information about the defense and security of the national capital within the federal government. And that people within the federal government did not know who they were allowed to talk to. Think about what we've learned with China electoral interference, where critical time-sensitive national security information is dumped into an undifferentiated binder, which is then available for federal officials to come read. Ignore. Or also to ignore, right. And that it is not prioritized in any way. And there was no one present to provide any kind of real-time assessment or analysis. Here's the binder, read it. And you have to do it at our facility because there's no provision to get you briefed. Think about Marco Mendocino, the late and unmissed public safety measure. Well, he's not dead, but he's just no longer in the job. Sorry, Marco, you've annoyed me, but I don't wish you harm. He didn't, and Bill Blair before him, our new minister of national defense, there's like a super secure email distribution list the Canadian federal government uses, and the Minister of Public Safety wasn't on it. And then as we found out with Paul Bernardo, the minister's office he wasn't even reading the emails they were getting. And now we've got NSICOP telling us that the RCMP is incapable of properly discharging their national security functions because insufficient resources plus mandate bloat. It's responsible for not enough resources to do the too many things it has been asked to do. There have been back-to-back on consecutive days this week as yet unexplained security disruptions at Pearson International Airport in Toronto. We've had two Molotov cocktail attacks in Montreal, and two schools there have been fired on. This war is not ending anytime soon. Can we say sitting ducks? Look, when you put it like that, Matt, maybe everything I used to, will be fine. I used to go to the economic club and read the telecom regulation reports. Yeah, well, you know, um, now you're helping your Jewish friends buy guns. Before, before COVID hit, one of the last big series of articles I did for TVO 
was Toronto's long-term capital plan for recreational properties within the city. And I don't mean like condos. I mean like city parks and recreation and how there was constant demand for hockey rinks, but there was also growing demand for more diverse sports like cricket pitches and soccer fields. And I really, I don't, I don't want to really write or talk about Israel. It's just, I was really happy with this idea that. What were you writing about five years ago? I can't remember. I can't remember what I was writing about two weeks ago, Matt. I mean, it's all gone. Once like once it's on the page, it's. it's... No, no, that's true. People um, say to me sometimes, "What'd you talk about on your radio show today?" I don't know. Well, so, what 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 was the year five years ago? So I would have had, had to quit. So I would have quit the post. I'm sure I was writing about. You were McLean's in CBC then. You were doing yeah, your CBC I'll, panels I'll uh, and politics and the federal government. Look, I don't. I was really happy not having to ever think about Israel. Been there. Really cool place. Yeah, or coronaviruses. Jerusalem is an awesome, awesome city. I, yeah. Exactly the kind of city I like. It's like when you have ancient cities built on ancient cities built yeah. on ancient cities, but they're still active, right? So everything feels like it's it 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 goes twenty kilometers into the ground. Those are my favorite kinds of cities. Jerusalem's really cool. I was Tel walking Aviv down a road one day and the road yeah. was also somebody's roof. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right? And then like all of a sudden, like a hatch pops out and a guy crawls out and he says, good morning. And I say, good morning. I look at my buddy who's a local. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And he goes, oh yeah, he probably doesn't have a front door. So he probably just pops out of his home. Yeah. And I'm like, we're walking cool. on some guy's home. He goes, oh yeah, everything's like layered here and built on top of everything else. It was incredible. And maybe and maybe this is also just a Canadian thing because everything here is so freaking new and purpose-built yeah. and, and orderly. Everything's so orderly when you go into old cities and they're just chaotic, disastrous messes. I love that. I'm just like, oh, this is so charming. <laughs> like, look at look at, look at at the character on that stone. Like, it, it, it blows my mind as a North American. I love it. Like Beirut. I really like Beirut. Been to Beirut. I love, it's one of my favorite cities because it's got like this, it was the Paris of the Middle East. But when I went, it had this whole faded grandeur thing going on. And like, so you would have these like, Bellapoc features, but like lichen growing up the walls. It was so cool. So cool. I really just um this is not this is not the timeline I wanted to be in. One of my best friends, you know him too. Um he said to me a couple years ago, he's a fellow Trekkie, and he mm -hmm. said to me, I have some he said to me totally sincerely, he was not kidding. He said to me, I feel as though like someone sat on the wrong butterfly and we're in the bad timeline. Mm -hmm. that that's that's we, we would not be the only ones to have had that, that perception. We were supposed to be going in one direction. We were supposed something to something happened and this, knocked us into this, this. This more, you know, the Middle East was going to be resolved. There hadn't been any violence in there for years. And like the the our we were supposed to have our shit together on pandemics and the low interest rates and low interest houses. rates forever. Yeah. And we were going to build things and things were going to be better for my kids. And the world was going to get more fun because AI was going to do all the shit jobs nobody wanted to do. And so that was going to free everybody up to do more leisure, more fun stuff. And it was all going to be, I mean, it wasn't going to be okay for me personally because I had gone into journalism and that was a mistake. <laughs> that was a life, that was a, that was a mistake of life, a bad life decision. But in but aggregate, we were doing But in the fine. aggregate, yeah. it was going to be okay. We, we, we were all going to get more liberal and more democratic and things were going to get, you know, stuff was going to get cheaper and our quality we, of life we was legalized gay marriage and everybody accepted it. Yep. And now we're going to legalize pot and that was going to be great. We could just chill out more. You know, everything was going to get, everything was going to be okay. We were at the end of history. We'd reached the terminus and gotten off the history train. And then, then somehow something, something went wrong. Something went wrong. And now we're back on the train and the train's gone back in time a hundred years. And now it's going to its inevitable conclusion again. And it's bad. And we've it's seen it before. Yeah. We've like wait like wait a minute. We've seen this train before. We recognize where this train goes. Yeah, it feels like a Twilight Zone episode where you open a door, like you're wandering a mansion trying to find a way out. You open a door and you step back into a room you've already been in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's kind of what it. It's starting to feel a little bit like that. You know anyway, what I mean, Jen? I you know what it be... all means? 
that uh, reality isn't isn't a. No, no, no! Come on, come on, come on! I'm gonna what? do the graphic. We need a graphic. Oh, our expectations were a problem. I'm yeah. gonna get a mug for you. Maybe we should do our our year end annual mug. Yeah, an annual mug again. We had. I could it could just be it. Yeah. Could the mug could just be your expectations were a problem on one side and the other side? We could do graphics of just all the stuff that went fucking weird. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Anyway, on that happy existential crisis. Have a great weekend, everybody. Have a great weekend. Subscribe to the line. And tell like, subscribe. Yeah. Thanks, Jen. Tell all your friends.